You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's amazing guest, who has done more in her military career than most people have done in a lifetime. Uh, we'll get to her in just a moment. She's also uh, part of an amazing foundation uh, for women's veterans. We'll get to that coming up. Just our normal set of reminders. Uh, please go follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. As well, subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can watch all of our episodes there as well. So if you're looking to watch a video version of it, it's all on our YouTube channel. Like and subscribe as well to the YouTube channel. Don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. Go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the sponsors tab. You'll be redirected to Amazon. You can do all your normal Amazon shopping. Uh, Same thing on your smartphone. It'll redirect you to your app. All the credit card information is saved. Very, very user-friendly. But you do all your normal Amazon shopping. You go to hazardground.com first. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we donate a percentage back to some of the great charities and organizations featured here on the hazard ground like the one you'll hear about today. Uh, Continue to give us Apple reviews. We need to keep climbing up the top 100 Apple podcast list. Uh, Hopefully we can crack it, but you got to leave us the reviews, guys. Doesn't have to be a long one. Give us five stars. Tell us why you love the show. Um, Tell us what you love about the show and make sure you do it wherever you get your Apple podcasts. That way we can continue to get uh, pushed up the top 100 Apple podcast list. Of course, don't forget to download the Kill Cliff TV app along with our YouTube channel. That's where you can watch all of our episodes is on the Kill Cliff TV app and our good friends at Kill Cliff, makers of Kill Cliff clean energy drinks, including uh, products with CBD. Here's their Killer Cliff Sickle. Go to killcliff.com and you can order all of your clean energy drinks uh, and all of their proceeds or a lot of their proceeds rather go to benefit the Navy SEAL Foundation. Of course, they were founded and started by our former Navy SEAL. So killcliff.com to get all of your clean energy. Okay, this week's guest, um, and again, uh, the military world is very sort of serendipitous in a sense where I meet one person and and they like the show and they say, this person would be amazing for your podcast. Well, that's how we got to know this guest coming up. She served 37 years in the military and is a retired CW5. She is deployed to Saudi Arabia as part of Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm. She's part of Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan, Operation Iraqi Freedom in Iraq. She is a registered nurse, holds two master's degrees, two bachelor's of science degrees, three associate's degrees, and a certificate in nonprofit management from Duke University. She attended the Defense Language Institute for both German and Spanish. I could go on and on and on. Let's just say very much, she's really, really smart, smarter than me. But she is also the president of the Women in Military Service for America Memorial Foundation. This is the only major national memorial honoring the 3 million women who have defended America from the Revolutionary War to today. She's also on the board of directors of the AUSA Association of the United States Army. She's a senior fellow there as well. Let us welcome in CW5 retired Phyllis Wilson to the Hazard Ground podcast. Phyllis, welcome and Wow. Yeah, I stay a little busy, but I, I think everybody does in their own way. You just sort of find where your sweet spot is and keep chasing after it, right? Yeah, well, I, I'm just wondering, um, are you actually retired? Because I know it says retired, but like I get the feeling that uh, that's not like a thing for you. 
Well, you know, that's the thing that I've learned too in the civilian world now is when we say, I tell most people now I'm an army veteran, not a retired from the army, because they think when civilians here retired, they think, you know, you're sitting on the beach drinking Mai Tais, which would be lovely. (laughs) I won't lie. But no, I just tell them I'm an an army veteran or that I served. But no, I do work. This is a very full time job, basically seven days a week uh, to raise the money for this charity that operates and maintains uh, the Military Women's Memorial, which sits at the entrance to Arlington National Cemetery. So there's no no rest for the wicked. And I must be horrible because I get very little rest. Um, I, I've neglected to mention, and I shouldn't have, you were the fifth command chief warrant officer for the U.S. Army Reserve, uh, which is a major position. Uh, and again, being a CW5 in and of itself uh, is incredible. But to hold that high level of one, uh, congratulations again on all your success uh, throughout the military. Um, so how long actually have you been, quote, you know, retired now? Um, almost exactly four years ago. Okay. I, I I could say I hung up my uniform, but I don't. I still have to pull it out and put it on for certain events, of course. Really? But uh, Yeah. Yeah. We go to a lot of functions here in the Washington, D.C. area. And depending upon whether it's, a, you know, I'd rather wear the, the long dress, but if it needs to be, uh, if I'm asked to wear my uniform or, you know, grand marshal and parades and things just to make sure that people know that there are women out there that have served so often. I mean, I've parked in places in a veteran spot and been told, uh, hey, that's veteran parking. And I'm thinking, yeah, I, I you want to say I can read. Thank you. <laughs> but instead, I went, yes, sir. Thank you. And then they'll ask me if my husband is with me or, you know, or they'll see I have disabled veteran plates on my car. And they'll tell me to thank my husband for his service. And so it's just that the constant grind of just trying to encourage people to think, what does a veteran look like anyway? Because that's when they find out I am one. Well, you don't look like a veteran. What are we, Mark, what are we supposed to look like? Yeah, well, I, I guess tattered and torn uh, is one. <laughs> I suppose. But, you know, more, more than that. Again, and it's just, it, it's crazy that we, uh, after all this and everything that's gone on, um, that we we would even still be stuck in that mindset. Thank your husband for me. Or how about just thank you? You know, uh, it's, uh, it's crazy. Um, you know, she who born the battle, right? Um, so it is, uh, it's amazing everything that you've accomplished, but I, I ask people to start back at the beginning and I know it was a four decades ago, but how'd you end up in the army? Hey, thanks for pointing that out. But yes, <laughs> you look great. You look great. <laughs> it's uh nobody in my family that I knew of had ever served in the military. My dad was born and raised Amish, you know, horse and buggy Amish. Oh, wow. And they're conscientious objectors. So um, they serve normally in medical community, whether it's stateside or they may go um, overseas, but they'll, they won't carry. Typically they wouldn't carry a weapon. And uh, so I really didn't know anything in my, about that, nor did I know anything about college because my dad went through eighth grade. That's all the Amish were required to do. And then they were, they worked, they worked and worked and worked. So I think that's where the work ethic comes from. And my mother uh, had, had graduated high school. She was Catholic. So you can imagine a young man that left the Amish community marrying an Am- a, a Catholic woman. Yes. I'm a Catholic, so, was, so I, I, I get it. <laughs> yeah. No, and both have the guilt complex. So you yes. can fathom. Oh, yeah. yeah. They laid that on thick. Yes, um, it's, it, it's then, God and guilt. They go hand in hand. Absolutely. So as I graduated high school and I knew I wanted, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. But as I started figuring out how long that was going to take and how much it was going to cost, um, after two years of trying to plug my way through community college and realizing this is going to take forever at the pace I'm going. 
uh, I stopped in at a recruiter's office and as fate would have it, uh, one of the things they needed this before the Berlin wall came down and they needed a German linguist. And my dad spoke Pennsylvania Dutch and I always hated as a kid when they would sit around the, the old folks and, and jabber in a foreign language and then just laugh. And you're like, I don't know what they're saying. So the opportunity to learn a language, to get a bonus and to uh, not worry about, you know, lodging meals, all those kind of things that I was, uh, I was eating cereal for breakfast. I was eating cereal for supper as a kid that had left home and was damned. I was never going to go back home. I was going to make this work, but uh, yeah, I, the army just, it was the perfect fit for me at the time. And I turned 21 in basic training. So, you know, I tried for a couple of years. It wasn't like I was fresh out of high school. And uh, when, thought when I'd you, do four years and go back to college and be done. And 37 years later, now I'm done. Yeah, guilty. I thought I was doing four years and done. Yeah. I'm still, still kicking it around. Um, when you told Amish dad and Catholic mom that you had signed up for the military, were they horrified? Well, I actually had not signed up. I had gone through the the book at the recruiters and they had them in numerical sequence. And back then, 95 series were our military police. And you had we, I would have had to go a few more pages to get to the signals intelligence voice intercept uh, MOS. But when I got to, as I was flipping through this big book, this before computers, right. um, I'm flipping through it. And uh, the MPs, the military police page had a woman in her uniform with a gun on her hip. And I'm like, I want that. That's exactly where I need to be. So I'm like, done deal. And uh, I think the, thank God my recruiter was at least, um, I, I was very naive for a 20 year old. I was, I was just a kid, you know, more than the typical, I think uh, very sheltered life. And uh and he said, why don't you go home and talk to your parents? So I did. And my dad went with me the next day. He says, show me the book. And so I showed it to him. And he's like, well, let's keep going. And as fate would have it, just a few more pages later, I got to the 98 series, which was uh, the signals intelligence. And then the recruiter sat up and he said, your ASVAB score was, was plenty high enough. You could do this if you'd prefer. And that one had a sign-on bonus of $3,500, which in the early 1980s, yeah. holy, that's a lot of money yeah. because my base pay was $500 a month. So you can see what $3,500 yeah. did as far as a lure to get me. I'm like, okay, I, I'll do that. So I spent a great year in Monterey, California after I went through basic. And uh, the Army or the military writ large gets you back for a great assignment where you're basically at college for a year on the coast of California. Wow. Very lax. So next assignment, I was sent to Germany, part of Third Armored Division, defending that old Fulda Gap from the uh, Soviet Union. Yeah. Uh, and we were in the field all the time. So they got a good balance out of it. I got one year of great listening to seals bark at the sea. And uh, and then the rest was out in the cold in Germany. I have to ask you just because I'm morbidly curious. What, uh, what Amish skills do you have? Can you churn butter? Can you... Uh, you know, the, the Amish are, 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 are a different bunch. I'm just I, my own morbid curiosity, knowing a little bit about the Amish. <laughs> I'm just curious what, what skills that you learned as, as a child. Yeah. Growing up, we uh, we had a full one acre garden. And uh, again, the naivete of being a kid, we were given big bowls to go out and pick the green beans down a long line of, in the garden. And so we picked all the beans. And about three days later, my mom gives us the same big bowl to go back out and pick beans. And, and we're thinking she's lost her ever loving mind. Mom, we already picked the beans because we didn't realize they just kept coming. 
and kept coming and kept coming. And but we had ducks, we had rabbits that we butchered, um, chickens. Dad would take a couple of deer every year. We might, if if it was a good year, we were not, we didn't have much money. Um, might split with some other family of full beef, so we'd have half of that. We were never hungry, but we never lived like high on the hog either. Um, but but these were just our chores. We all went out and gathered eggs and you know plucked chickens after mom cut their head off. And and these are things that, you know, life skills that doesn't make me flinch. And that's why now to be a nurse and, you know, some people say, how can you look at blood? I looked at it when I was a little kid. We dressed rabbits. We did all those things. So I think those are wonderful skills that I made sure, even though uh, my boys certainly uh, joined the military as well. But for us, I got my brother to bring a rabbit hutch to my place near Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and we raised rabbits and they learned biology. They learned how to dress, how to skin animals, how to uh, tan hides. So I think those are skills that personally, I think everybody should know how to do. Listen, I I don't argue with you. I just being a a New York guy and growing up near the city, I'm just a call the guy guy. You know, like if I want somebody to dress a rabbit, I'll pay somebody else to do it. You you, you dress the rabbit. I'll just Mm -hmm. eat it when it's whenever it's ready. So uh, different strokes for different folks, right? Uh, anyway, I digress. Uh, back to the military. Um, and I kind of, given where you are now as, as the president of, you know, the uh, the Americans Women Memorial Foundation, uh, when you signed back up, when you signed up originally and you looked around, are you going, I'm the only female here? You are unnerved by that? No, I have um, two older sisters and two younger brothers. And um, it just seemed like I always ended up having more affinity with my brothers. And so I, I was a tomboy and I was that mean kid sister to my older sisters that would cut the hair off their Barbie dolls. <laughs> I was that one. Nice. Um, and so they didn't want anything much to do with me and they're sitting there painting their nails. They're just a couple of years older than me. And I wasn't to that point yet. So I just tagged along with my younger brothers. And of course, being that little bit older girls do, uh, you know, physically I, could more than keep up. They had to try to keep up with me at that point. And, and being around the other boys playing ball, I was a lefty, but we didn't have, we couldn't afford a left-handed glove. And so I learned how to catch with my left hand and the glove and then take the ball out of the glove, quickly put the glove under my right arm, pull my hand out so I could switch the ball quickly and then pitch it left-handed because I better throwing, but these are just the things that I think a lot of kids in the, in across the country learn how to do. And um, the boys all accepted me because I was as rugged as they were. Um, And then of course, as I got a little bit older into my teen years, I became a little bit more of a girly, but I'd say I'm the sports girl as opposed to like, I have a sister that's more of the complete diva. She actually was a model. Um, and so that was all her. I know I'm not good at that kind of thing. So uh, there, the army was great. It didn't bother me if I was the only female in a room. Sure. There, there wasn't the internet back then, obviously. And, you know, there weren't many books written on how to survive basic training. Now you can go to YouTube and figure it out. Uh, but were you in a culture shock when it first started? I mean, obviously it seems physically you were okay, but was there anything about basic training that sort of, you know, uh, threw you off mentally? No, no, not for me. Um, some of the others, we did have a couple of them that came from Queens. And uh, <laughs> that was interesting because if anybody else was slacking and we had to like on the, the, the formation runs, some of these women would fall out of the run. And then, of course, the whole formations got to do that fun turnaround and go pick them up. And, and so you get to run extra distance and you didn't want to run any extra distance. And it turned out, you know, it was the, the, the city women that were the 
then they get right in somebody's face quickly afterwards. It's like, don't make us do that again. You better find a way to suck it up and stay in the formation. And, and those were the kind of things. And I had women that uh, had very long hair. My hair was uh, very fine and I didn't want to cut it, but it had to stay up off our collar. But, you know, with all the putting your hat on and off, on and off, on and off, your hair starts coming down and they're threatening all the time. They're going to march you to the barbershop and make it get cut off to like what the way I wear it now, but I didn't want it back then. And so uh, luckily one of the uh, women that was really good African-American teammate of mine at basics, she's like, get your hair wet and let me braid it. And man, she braided it so tightly, (laughs) had massive headache, but my hair didn't come down. And so I, I did get to graduate high school, you know, basic training, you know, with waist length hair. And thanks to it's a team, you know, you find ways um, to help each other get through it. So, again, it's, uh, it's hard to encapsulate 37 years in a, in a relatively short amount of time. But you graduate from basic uh, and, and you go on to be a signal, a signal, you know, individual, right? That's what you were. Military sp- intelligence. Okay. That was MI back then? Okay. Right. Yeah, am I? Um, you, you, use, you use terms that, as a logistician I'm not familiar with. Uh, you know, I, I just uh, – just show me wh- wh- where the battle is and I'll get you everything you need. Um, but no, I, I – so you end up going to AIT and everything else. What happens sort of after that? Unless there was something major of note, I don't want to fast forward too fast, but, you know, kind of give me through the early steps of your career. Well, I, you know, like I said, we went to Germany. I had met my husband, the man that would become my husband, while we were out at Defense Language Institute. And just as I was arriving into my first assignment, after all, I had 18 months of training before I actually had an MOS. And so out of a four-year enlistment, I only had two and a half years left to serve. But um, we had met and married while I was still out in California. Then I had to go to Goodfellow Air Force Base for additional training, then to Fort Devens for even more training before I flew over to Germany. By the time I got to Germany, I was seven months pregnant. And you don't show up to a really tactical army unit with a belly. It is not a good good look for anybody, probably even today, but certainly in the early 80s. My command sergeant major had come from nothing but cavalry units and had never been in a unit previously with any females. So this is 1982, late 82. And uh, he didn't know what the heck to do with me. Um, and he, fortunately, though, he treated me like any other soldier. And I really... Uh, admired him. Although anybody that knows Command Sergeant Major Peterson from the 525 MI Brigade, uh, they know the 533rd MI Battalion, Frankfurt, Germany, early 80s. He was a mean SOB. But um, yeah, he taught me a lot of things. And and in his own stoic and sometimes what was certainly not, you know, acceptable today, he taught me a lot of things that I really do admire him for having done so. For example, well, you know, I uh, they had me put up first for soldier of the month and soldier of the quarter and then ultimately soldier of the year. And so now I was competing with all of the other soldiers in third armored division. And so my command sergeant major is driving me to third armored division headquarters for the the final competition. (laughs) And as we're driving along, the things that this man would say, smoking a stogie eight o'clock in the morning didn't matter. He was smoking a cigar. And he said, I still don't understand why the hell women think they need to be in the military. And I said, you know, you know, it was a conversation, but it was it was not confrontational. It was just like this is how he spoke to everybody. And I said, what is what is the downside of allowing us to serve in the military as well? 
And he looked at me because he's a very tactical, very combat oriented guy, Vietnam, served in Nam and the whole bit. And he looked at me and said, straight faced, this was not a joke. There are parts of a woman's body that should never be filled with mud. He said that. And I just, I look, that's what I did. Okay. Okay. Um, Um, Let me think about that. I have no, I I I would argue there are no parts of a man's, but parts of a man's body that shouldn't be filled with mud, but you know, I I don't disagree there either, but he was just, that was him. And, uh, but he treated me. I was pregnant twice in that. Obviously shortly after had, had my first child, Returned back. I was 22 years old, you know, fit as a fiddle was back running outrunning most of the guys in a month. And then almost immediately thereafter, no amount of contraception seemed to preclude that I was pregnant again, <laughs> which the unit hated me. My, my my mates hated me because they thought I had gotten pregnant. So I didn't have to go to the field. Right. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. We're, we're using every precaution sort of, celibacy and that ain't happening um, from getting pregnant. And uh, so there were those issues, but he said, you're not sick. There's nothing wrong with you. You're just pregnant. So I went to formation for PT every morning, like everybody else did. And as I got further along, but right up in nine months pregnant, I'm still going to regular PT, which I credit with why my recovery was so quick thereafter. Uh, You know, those of us that are already fit when you become pregnant, you should make, in my mind, as a nurse, as a clinician, you know, keep it up as long as you can, but listen to your body. But, you know, young and healthy, I had no issues with that. I, I don't want to divert to this tangent, but I feel like since you're talking about it, I have to ask you about it now. Sure. After 37 years, since the Army has just recently uh, altered their PT test for the umpteenth time again. Um, and uh, I, I look, I've said all along that uh, the Army didn't adhere to a very simple philosophy when looking at their APFT or their ACFT. Don't make perfect the enemy of good, right? Find something that's good. Nothing is going to be perfect. You're not going to find a perfect system that's going to perfectly make everybody comparable on the same level on the same scale. And I say that long story short because they fought like hell to get this one singular test with one set of grades, no male, no female standards. And we're right back where we started with male and female standards again. So uh, round and round we go. I'm just curious your thoughts uh, after... 40 years of, of doing this when they, now that they finally changed it, I'm sure you're aware of all the changes and everything else, but are you in favor of separate standards for men and women? Does it matter? What are your thoughts? I would, this is complete, although it's on a podcast, non-attribution. This has nothing to do with any organization agency. This is Phyllis Wilson, civilian, retired mm-hmm. military speaking. I think what we ask our men and women to do in the army on the battlefield knows no age and no gender. So you either got to put up or shut up. You know, when I got to the point when I no longer could easily uh, and I wanted to max it, my APFT, it was time for me to drop my papers. I was not going to do an alternate event. And that was my own personal standard. Not everybody feels that way and not everybody can. So if you need to do the bike or the two and a half mile walk or whatever the antidote is for what you need to do, I get it. But this is me personally. What we need to do, we, we train to fight and win America's wars in the United States army. And if you can't get out on the battlefield and do what you need to do within your career field, then you're probably, it is a young person's job. Yep. You know, that's how I feel about it. 100%. And I don't think there should be separate standards. 
I, I, listen, I, I don't have any argument. I'm just mad that as a consistent 275 PT guy my entire career, finally I started going old enough where the standards were low enough that I could get into the high 290s. They got rid of the freaking test. So now I'm pissed off because, you know, the last PT test I took, I got a 293, and I'm like, I'm eventually going to max this thing, right? If they keep dropping the standards and I just stay where I am, eventually I'll fall into the max range. Now they got rid of it. So say love you. Anyway, uh, that's just my own personal answer. Can I just quickly inject? Sure. When I went to basic training in 1981, my standard for push-ups uh, to max was 40 mm-hmm. push-ups. Okay, great. And, uh, you know, sit-ups likewise, not that dissimilar. 20 years later with my time in service, they revamped the APFT and it went right back to at that point at 40, 41 years of age to max my push-ups was 40 push-ups all over again. It had declined over 20 years and now they put it right back up because they understood we've got to make sure that our, our men and women in the military have, we can somehow find a way to, it's not perfect to your point. It's good. And it doesn't tell us that they have some degree of fitness to do the things that they have. Now, I understand why some of the new, um, the the ball toss and those kind of things, why those were put in place. It makes perfect sense. If you're trying to hoist somebody up and over a wall or into a window on, on a higher level, what they're asking you to do here right. is exactly that. So if you can correlate it to what we need our men and women in the military, in the Army to do, then at least I can buy into it. There's some logic behind it. Uh, But yeah, the idea that, you know, and again, I would argue the one thing I felt should change isn't by gender, but by weight. You know, I've got a daughter-in-law that's in in the army and she is five foot one and weighs 107 pounds on a heavy day. So that deadlift, you know, if you would say all soldiers, because I fear that you're going to live with long-term, uh, skeletal implications, both men and women, when you're asking them to deadlift, I don't know how much you weigh, Mark, but you're more than 107 pounds. And, and so for you to deadlift something, uh, vice uh, a man or woman that weighs in their 120s or 130s, is think, you know, 160 and lower or 150 weight and less doesn't have to deadlift, right. basically double their weight. Yeah. I carried rucks that weighed as much as me. I jumped out of aircraft with, with more weight on me than what I weighed at the time at, a, you know, about 110, 115 pounds. By the time you get all your kit on you, you're, you're, you're humping it out there. Yep. And sadly, that may be why my rating with the VA is what it is today, but I wasn't going to quit. None of us are going to quit. Right. No. So that's a standard I think we have to look at. And, and I'm sure there are plenty of women that are rolling their eyes at my conversation right now. But again, this is me as an individual that, both from a clinician standpoint and having played the game long enough that I feel I'm qualified to, to at least speak my mind. I've earned the right to give you my opinion. A- Amen. And I asked for it. So if you don't like it, stick it. Um, you can yell at me, not you. Uh, don't yell at my guests. It's, it's kind of the rule of the podcast. Uh, anyway, but uh, no, thank you. In all seriousness, I, I certainly appreciate, um, you know, the candor on it. I'm, I'm always curious, you know, and again, um, one of the things that we always hear from people, who write into the show is like, get more females, get more, you know, we'd love to hear from more females and it's great. And I'm like, yes, we we try like crazy to get more of them. It's just, it's, it's a, it's a numbers game, right? Like only 13% of the military is female. And so we have about like 12 to 15% of our guests are female. So um, whenever I get a female on, I'm always curious of your thoughts on these things, because again, I don't think we, 
explore enough of that conversation. Um, and again, mm-hmm. it, it could be its own podcast in and of itself. It could be its own episode just to have this conversation. Maybe we'll do it one day down the road. But, you know, I was just, uh, I was curious of what your thoughts were. I didn't, I didn't want to get off too much more of a tangent because I, I do want to hear more about your journey and your story. So um, after Germany, where are you headed next? And, and I guess kind of, uh, f- you know, without fast forwarding too far, like how do you end up in the warrant community? When does that happen for you? Sure. So I did. I left active duty um, around Christmas time of 1984 and two little rugrats that had already made it back to the States. And I was had to clear everything out of Germany. So I made it home um, on Christmas Eve uh, in time to hug the babies because one of them was he was born in August and now it was December. So I'd been about a month without that little guy. And that was just killing me to get back home. Uh, But I had uh, already found been applied and accepted into a bachelor's degree in nursing. And my husband was an E6 and he had dropped his warrant officer packet. And what we found out right about then he was selected and his first assignment had been in Berlin, Germany. And then the second we had was in Frankfurt together. And so we thought, no worries. I can go to college here in the United States. um, And I'll just transfer to wherever he's assigned here in the States after two back-to-back overseas assignments well, you get a reset when you start as an officer. And so all bets were off and we were going back to Augsburg, Germany uh, oh, the wow. next time. So I did not stay away for two years to finish my bachelor's degree. I had, had completed, even in all the craziness of Germany, the first time I had completed my associate's degree um, with the two little ones and that. And uh, so I just had two years to finish a bachelor's. But as fate would have it, um, my husband was going to be sent right back over to Augsburg. And we just couldn't imagine the family being apart when these two little boys were like one and two years old for me to finish my degree. So I found an LPN program, a licensed practical nurse program that I could accelerate through. And so we were apart for about mm, five, six months. Then I got over to Germany as a civilian, but an Army Reserve soldier and continued, went through like my PLDC, what is it, Warrior Leaders course or whatever they're calling it now. That first one, the E4s and E5s go through. Uh, So I did that and completed that over in Germany. And when we came back to the States, um, actually, even then, my husband had promoted to CW2, Chief Warrant Officer 2. And I got a letter from Human Resources Command saying, a a review of your records indicates that you would be uh, qualified to apply for a warrant. And while I was married to one, I understood the program. So I sent it back in thinking, now i got to do the whole paperwork shuffle like he had. But I guess for the Armour Reserve, they were so short, they just scrubbed my records and said, good enough. And uh, told me I was, in fact, selected. But my husband was not on board with this at all. Not at all. Because he knew what he, well, candidate school for warrants was, was hazing 101 201, 301, 401. They had got it into the graduate program of hazing really? at that point in the in the mid-80s. It was horrid. They would put you in the front lane and rest on gravel for an hour and walk away. Um, yeah, so he just didn't want his wife to go through that. And I, I can appreciate his, his mentality. But uh, finally, the HRC Human Resource Command told me, uh, basically, last chance, we're going to revoke your offer if you don't go. And so uh, I did go. And uh, again, these are the, the the struggles, I suppose, of a dual military. He was adamantly opposed and therefore did not want to, um, at the time, support even, you know, care and feeding of the kids 
while I was off to school. So I had to get, you know, his parents to basically provide that kind of coverage. He was still a soldier. He was with 82nd and he was doing all kinds of cool things. And I get that. But, you know, when he would go to TDY or go places, you know, it wasn't a thought. It was just automatic that the me as the wife would would take care of the kids, the house, go to school, go to work, do everything. Um, so that was part of the beginning of the end, actually, for our relationship, as you can imagine. Um, and so in 1989, I uh, was appointed then as a uh, war officer one. And then, of course, 90 strikes. That's Desert Shield, Desert Storm. My husband's at 82nd, and they, they're one of the first ones to lift and shift early August of 1990. Um, and then I get orders as the day the president is eligible to capable of mobilizing the Army Reserve. I get notified to report to Fort Bragg. Fortunately, we lived near there um, in five days. So, again, my in-laws scrambled to get down there to uh, to take care of the boys, not knowing what that meant for me. Ultimately, it means, obviously, at some point you're leaving because uh, you do end up supporting Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm. So, um, and, and again, you stayed in the MI community, obviously, when you went warrant. You didn't leave the MI, MI world. Um, but... Nonetheless, uh, how does that whole deployment come about? And what are you hearing? What are you told? Where do you go? Right. So, of course, there's all of the the, the ramp up. And, and I'd always kept my, my, obviously, my clearance was always good. So top secret, all of the extra caveats that go with that for signals intelligence. And then we, we first reported to 18th Airborne Corps at Bragg and drew all of our issue. And, of course, at the same time, my husband is over there in Saudi and, and you're just you're scared to death. So you, you're not sleeping. You're checking, you know, the television. Thank God we had CNN by then. So we could check it all the time, day, night, because you weren't sleeping. Right. Plus you heard all of the, the aircraft, whether they were fixed or rotary wing going overhead in and out of Bragg constantly. And it was just one of those things. And then ultimately, you know, it was like doing Intel support for the the units that were doing really sticking right along the border between Saudi Arabia and Iraq. And that's really what the mission was. Um, and, and then, of course, as you know, it was over so quickly. You barely were there for us. And then we turned and we're right back. Wow. Um, when you when you get there, is there like any part of you that's like, it's a little more, but more than I bargained for originally, or you, you I mean, I kind of feel like you were like pumped to be there. I, I was pumped. I was okay. ready. Yeah. <laughs> it was like the first time I felt like, put me in coach. I'm, you know, you train all this time. And of right. course it'd been uh, nine years that I'd been in the service and, you know, you'd seen the little smatterings of Grenada or Panama, you know, but this was the first big something. And it was the first time that there was a, it was the largest, um, forward deployment of women in the military since World War II. Wow. Over 40,000 women went over uh, in support of Desert Operations, Desert Shield and Storm. So, yeah, it was, I was all in. When you get back, um, is there a sense of, um, did people, did males look at you differently because of the experience that you'd had? I mean, did you get, do you know, to a point where, you know, you, um, I don't want to say got more respect from people, but I mean, you know, you, you had constantly fought this uphill battle as a female to this point. Did, did any of that change after deployment? 
Well, you see, I was in the Army Reserve, so there wasn't it wasn't like a day to day, you know, in a patch or anything like that. So not so much. And again, uh, the unit that I was assigned to, we um, we were playing clothes most of the time, even when we went to our our drills. So there was no and, and it's a mix and match. People are in and out enough that. I didn't notice that. I will, I will tell you honestly, through most of the nineties and it wasn't until after nine uh, 11 that um, yeah, then even to this day for good or bad. And I would argue for bad, a lot of the troops that are in the army that are not sporting a combat patch on their right shoulder. Um, it's not for lack of trying. Right. Right. Um, I, before we get to nine 11, I do want to ask your thoughts on one thing that, uh, that happened in the military, um, and it was in 92, 93 at Aberdeen Proving Grounds. Sergeant Major McKinney, I think his name was at the time. Um, long story short, he was you know, one of the first people exposed for sexually assaulting and abusing female privates uh, at, at basic training in AIT. And I, and I know this because my basic course at the time was at Aberdeen um, as, a, as an original ordinance officer. Uh, so there was an extra emphasis on it there, and you know, it was well told. But um, I'm curious to this point, um, if, if you're so willing to share a, about your experience and had you seen it happened, had, had, had you been harassed or assaulted at any point in time in your career, or I get the sense that nobody wanted to mess with you, but nonetheless, um, you know, had, do you, did it happen to other females? Because this became like the first real domino to fall in this whole exposure of sexual assault and sexual harassment in the military. Yeah. Um, and, and those are the, the areas that I, I do tend to gloss over, no doubt. Um, I'm very proud to be a soldier. I'm very proud of the military and I'm proud of basically 99.999 of the men that I've had the privilege to serve with. And there's a few jerks. And that one of those was in basic training. And as you know, in basic, you are the, the, your NCOs, your drill sergeants ruled the roost and you wouldn't dream of questioning anything. Well, uh, one evening, there were uh, myself and three other females that were picked up by a Jeep back when we still had Jeeps. And we were taken over to a uh, like an office building on Fort Jackson, South Carolina, to clean empty trash cans, clean these offices and so forth. Um, and that was our job. Well, um, we'd probably been there about five weeks by the time it was our turn. We'd never heard any rumbling from any of our you know, one platoon of females, three platoon of males in our company. And none of our other females had said it. We've never heard anything. Um, well, we get there and while we're cleaning and we're all in different offices, um, sure enough, an NCO, not a drill sergeant, but an NCO from Fort Jackson uh, comes in and closes the door to the office and starts walking towards me as he's unbuckling his belt and says, I know you've been here for like a month or more. I know you want it. And it took me, even though I was 21, took me a little bit to like, what the hell is he talking about? Um, And so I, the light bulb went on quickly and I realized this is not a good situation. And, And he's an NCO and I'm a private and I'm like, we've already, it's been drilled into us. You, you know, I mean, you don't say anything negative back to them. So I stood there for a minute and I'm like, I'm not sure what you're saying. And he can, then he unzipped because it was back before we had the buttons on our uniforms. He had a zipper 
and he unzipped and um, I just waited till I got close enough. And I have brothers and I have need them in the groin and I sure as hell had no problem doing it to him, dropped him. And then my, oh my God, I was just trembling. I weighed 104 pounds when I joined the army and I am trembling. And I like couldn't get the door unlocked to get the hell out of there, but I'm already yelling and I'm hollering. Now I'm like team mom hollering, where are they? Where, where's my girls? You know, and, and we all collect and we double timed it two miles back to our unit. It's nine, nine 30 at night. And we go to the orderly. We tell them our drill sergeants come in. Oh my God, are they furious? And at that point in your career, you don't, we never heard a follow-up, but based on our two drill sergeants, one male and one female and their furor, not at us, certainly, um, I just, we had to believe that something was going to happen, but we told all of our platoon mates. And as far as I know, none of us as females um, ever had to go do that job for the rest of the time that we were in basic training. And the only other time, again, it's times when you're most vulnerable, it seems to me. Um, I was in warrant officer candidate school and um, all of the, the warrants that are training us wear a web belt, sort of like your drill sergeant does. That's their their web belt. Now they're in a position of authority. And I, sadly, yes, the academic in me, I was not, I was the only person in my class not on academic probation. So it meant I could get back to the barracks a little bit sooner than everybody else. But we all had to do each other. We did laundry. We had to do, we had to press our uniforms by hand, you know. So I was pulling people's clothes out of the dryer and just pressing. But we also had one set of showers so the two females in the entire building, and we had our own little room, um, we had to get showered first in the morning and then all of the men. So they're pounding on the door, get the hell out, get the hell out of the showers. So you really never showered in the morning. So the good thing was I had privacy as soon as I got back in the evenings. Well, thank God he didn't walk in me on the shower, but I was standing there in like my PT clothes, ironing somebody else's uniform on the ironing board. And he just kept walking closer and closer until suddenly my back is against the wall. And at that point, the, again, the light bulb kicks in. He's got the same rank on his chest as my husband. What the hell am I afraid of here? So I pushed him off and said, I don't know what's your problem. And he's like, Oh, I'll take my web belt off. And I said, you need to keep it all on and get the hell out of here. Cause I will. And I did report him by then. Now, of course I was a warrant officer candidate. I've been a staff sergeant. Um, so not totally wet behind the ears, but I was just certain they were going to dismiss me from the program for standing up, but they did not. And honestly, those are the only two. But as a registered nurse working in hospitals and in ORs, I can tell you there's plenty of civilian men in the medical community that will grab people's rear ends, especially when you're in sterile conditions, you can't do anything except hold something for the surgeon in your hand means your butt is absolutely fair game, apparently. So, I mean, it's not a military issue. Sadly, it's a societal thing. And and this thing of boys will be boys is complete BS in my mind, especially when we're willing to give our lives side by side. I should be able to run to anybody that wears the same uniform as me and know that they've got my back, that that's the safety zone. And instead, that's where the the breach of trust is the biggest thing, I think, Uh, whether it's a man that's sexually assaulted in the military or a woman, that breach of trust, that that is our brother and sisters in arms. That's where I think the biggest pain is. Yeah, uh, incredibly well said. And and thank you for your candor and honesty on it. I know know some of that stuff can't be easy. I'm I'm glad for you it sort of ended better than it had for many other 
yes. uh, females across the board. And, you know, again, it's, I, I just took command again and I make it pretty plainly clear. Um, I tell anybody in reference to sexual assault and sexual harassment, I said, within the limits of my bounds, I will end your fucking career. I'm with you. And I just, I leave you. it at that. I, yep. I said, if you want to roll the dice and gamble, do it. Uh, and I will end my career trying to end your career just out of principle. So, uh, it, it's, it's that simple. I don't, I don't have any tolerance for it. So, uh, and, and I, we hear that word zero tolerance all the time, but it, it, it's, it's empty speak, right? Cause mm-hmm. if it was zero tolerance, we would have fixed this thing already, but different discussion for a different day. But anyway, thank you for your candor. Okay. Um, so that whole thing happens and you're dealing with this throughout your career. I'm sure it's some, you know, it ebbs and flows, right? You come across these guys who like to run their mouth a little bit too much uh, from time to time and it comes and goes, but you, you've withstood it all, obviously. So where are you on 9-11 and what happens? I was working as a nurse uh, when 9-11 happened, a uh, civilian, had a, a beeper on my my hip. We were meeting with um, some leadership within the, the community where I, uh, we had a, a major home health and hospice organization and I was one of the clinical coordinators for that. And so we were meeting with the public talking about hospice care and while we're in this public very public forum back in the day of just two-way pagers and my pager vibrated on my hip and I pulled it off and I saw that a plane had hit the World Trade Center and just a week or so before that if I recall correctly a small plane had buzzed like the Statue of Liberty and I thought it's the same kind of idiot that that did that but when it buzzed the second time, and of course, my unit, at the, my Army Reserve unit was up at Fort Meade, Maryland with the National Security Agency. And so we were doing some pretty cool missions already. And when I saw the second one, I instantly knew and I told people, listen, we've got to stop the meeting. Something horrible is happening to our country right now. And the first thing I want to do is just get a TV. I wanted to see what was happening. Um, and my two sons that, that ultimately after 9-11 and 03 and 04 joined um, you know, there were like a junior and senior in high school that day. So it was a, a family conversation, but it was certainly, I mean, I just remember how it felt that day. Who doesn't, right? right. Well, you, I mean, you had been to combat. Um, their father had been to combat. Um, yes. and, and I mean, at this point, Tom, you guys still married or you had split at this point? We were splitting okay. and we were, we were finalizing the divorce during this. Uh, and I only asked that just because you said you, you know, you sat down and talked with the kids. Had you guys talked about with the kids in high school and they wanted to possibly join, were you guys for it against it? How did that conversation go? Um, I always feel like personally, I wish every young man and woman in the country did some kind of service, whether it's in military uniform or, or for those of us that have been to, um, countries that that certainly don't look like the United States. I think there's huge value because we have too many people that they don't understand, you know, these young girls and boys that are worried about even, you know, their, their roots are growing out or the nail problems or fingernails and, oh, I broke a nail and now my life has ended. And I'm thinking you've got to go someplace besides the United States. And I would love for uh, more service uh, from the time they graduate high school, at least one year and ideally two years. I think a conscription would be a great thing because even though my boys and we were pretty firm with them, uh, they all young men and women can always use a little bit more discipline. And, uh, and, and that was a really good thing for them. So I was not going to tell them no. Uh, my parents did not tell me no. Um, I think they had their trepidation about it. And I would certainly knowing that after 9-11, uh, when they signed up in 03 and 04, that they were very likely going to end up truly in a combat zone. Yes, I went to 
you can say went to combat, but um, my role didn't put me outside of the wire, um, even when I went to Iraq. But I was with Joint Special Operations Command, and I felt it can't be any safer than this. All yeah. these guys, that, I mean, I had my weapon and everything, but it was always at the ready. But I was telling the guys, look, I'll reload, <laughs> and I'll just hand my weapon back over to you guys. You guys are better shots than I am. I mean, they were, when you run through 10,000 rounds in a year, of ammo yourself Mm -hmm. on the range, you should be pretty doggone proficient. When I get, if I'm lucky to get 30 or 60 down, down, you know, down range in a year, you can't expect me to be able to do the same as, but I'm happy to, to be there shoulder to shoulder and, and do whatever I can do. And it's not that I'm afraid to fire. I would, some people say you would shoot another human being damn straight i would shoot somebody if they're coming at me and mine yes yeah i i I've, it's them or me uh the choice seemed easy and obvious for me i didn't really have to overthink this one uh there was no, no analysis by paralysis by analysis here on this one uh i'll choose my life over the enemy thanks uh, not not a difficult one uh, so actually who gets to combat first your kids or you it's about the same time. I actually really? promoted one of my sons. We were both, he was in Taji when I was in Balad. Oh, wow. What year yeah, was this? So this would have been either 06, 07-ish timeframe. Okay. Well, I was in 05 and 06. I was in Iraq. So yeah. uh, Taji and Balad were two of my major uh, destination points from Baghdad. So a lot, lot, lot of miles on the trucks through uh, throughout Tampa and whatnot. Yeah, that's the thing with the logisticians. And actually, this past weekend, I spent uh, out in Indiana and uh, uh, spent some time. And, and Jessica Lynch told her story several times over the weekend. And she's and I asked her about it after the fact, because sort of like the mom in me, like, "Are you okay?" You know, she's like, "You know, it actually is helpful, especially as it gets because the twenty third, just two days ago, was the nineteenth anniversary of the the attack that that killed." nine and and her and so many others were taking POW. Um, And she said, it's, it's helpful, especially this time of year for her to talk it through and get it out. Otherwise it just festers inside of her. Sure. Um, So when you, so Iraq is before Afghanistan for you. Yes. Okay. So when you get, I know oddly enough. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, listen, uh, I I was there for 05 to 06. The surge was in 07 when they had 140,000 people, Mm 140,000 troops, which is, absolutely insane number um different discussion for a different day yeah. uh, nonetheless but um so when you when you get to iraq what is what are you doing what's your mission uh, uh, counterterrorism okay. i had already started working at fort bragg with joint special operations command and then they moved us down to mcdill air force base to mm-hmm. special ops headquarters and uh, initially, there was about 75 of us. Such a privilege. This was one of the best assignments I ever had. And we were told in early O2 to start, um, basically, it was the hunt for bin Laden front end. Uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, a year before we got him in March of 03. All of these, we had, it was like what we called the donut. So you had the donut hole, which was bin Laden and Zawahiri. And then the top seven around them, which was the donut. So the donut hole was the top two plus seven. And these were KSM and, and the others that we were trying to locate. And, and then you find, I learned a lot about the interagency or lack of interagency work. Although we had a joint interagency task force, um, it tended to be other three-lettered organizations that uh, we may have located somebody, but they wanted them. And so even though even JSOC was told to stand down and, you know, this OGA and others would, would take them on. 
And, and so we still continue to get the intel from what they were able to discern as, as detainees uh, to help us move towards getting the rest. And so that kind of work was, you know, seven days a week, really long days. And it was the best, the best time because you really felt like, you were on truly on the tip of the sword with, with the special operations community. Absolutely. I mean, that was my first deployment. I was with CJ Sodaf, uh, in, in Baghdad. Uh, and I always wondered, uh, because I was on the opposite end of it. Like I never, uh, I got to go out on some of the missions with, with the green berets and everything and, and go on some assaults and raids and everything else. And, you know, that felt like the tip of the spear, but it's the, the work behind it. I, I, that's why I never went MI. Cause I just, it's, it, my mind doesn't work that way. Um, it, it's not that I'm not smart enough. I just might, you know, some people are better analytically than others uh, in understanding this stuff. Uh, but I'm always fascinated about the amount of hours and everything that you guys put in and how you're following someone that you don't know uh, surreptitiously or otherwise. Um, and, and you get to learn everything about this individual through their data footprints, their digital footprints and everything else. And uh, I've just, you know, you have to love that to truly absorb it and do it for 20 hours a day. You, you do. And, you know, like I suck at remembering people's names, <laughs> anybody, because I didn't have to, it's on your shirt for God's sakes. I don't need to, I look at your rank. I look at your name. There you go. That's all I need to know. But when it came to chasing the bad guys, uh, it's almost like I had for that time frame. I can't claim it now, almost like photographic memory. So when we would get their cell phones and we would tear things down and we'd look and we'd find uh, our dust ones, cat cards on there, uh, you know, of the guys that they had taken uh, their ID cards were on their phones and, and, and all the, and photos that I'm like, Hey, I've seen that picture on somebody else's phone before, not about us, but a lot of porn, a lot of other things. It's and you know, like, hey, wait a wait a second, I've seen that one before. And so, while they would, so you would get it to the interrogators to say, ask him if he knows this other guy, because we'd figure out which other phone, who the owner of the other photo was that was the same. And I've never heard of him. It's like, well, it's odd that you have this same picture, and we would share it with them. Uh, so we had some sneaky ways of, of getting them to I, finally pass up. I, I, I always believed, and, and you know, I, I wish I had this uh, innate ability when I argue with my wife of of knowing the answer to the question before you ask it, right? Like, yeah, I, it, I, I, I was fortunate <laughs> enough, to, and it was one of the best experiences I ever had. I was fortunate enough to sit in on an interrogation, um, a couple of them actually, uh, which were, you know, these are crystallized experiences in my mind. But I always remembered, and I always remember thinking whenever they asked a question, like, he already knows the answer. But this guy doesn't mm-hmm. know that he knows the answer. He's already asking. And he's just trying to weed out other information, uh, which, again, is a level of analytics, I think, that, you know, um, for me, it's like, you know, gallon of information into a shot glass of a brain. Like, you know, just things keep spilling out. So uh, it's not it's not my bag. Um, but, you know, again, it's it's just fascinating to watch how you guys work in that sense. And you talk about the tip of the spear, you know, it it almost seems like the easy part is kicking down the door and going to drag the guy out and figuring out the rest of it from there. It's, it's the hours and, you know, cause that's what, that's 30, 45 minutes, whatever it is of a day when you guys had 20 hours a day for three weeks, just trying to find out where the guy is. I I will tell you, that's when Ambien became my huge friend and it took me years to get off from that Ambien because of the hype. And then uh, as an old, by the time I'm I'm there, I'm in my forties, you know, and I'm sending these kids in my mind that are the age of my kids 
um, and as the senior intel analyst on some of these missions, and we were taking down 10 objectives a night. So all these choppers, all these dogs, all these guys fully kitted, and it's based on, is my intel good enough? And then you've got to sit there. McChrystal was the commander of JSOC at the time, who I adore, and I would follow him not only to the gates of hell, if he stepped over and said, follow me, I would go. I trust him that much. And um, when we would, the missions would go after all the intel was collected and we figured which houses were the right ones to go to. Um, then you had to sit now in the jock and watch the porn. We called it predator porn um, because the drones are over there. And now you see the heat signals of the dogs and the humans that are coming in from the different angles towards the house. And you're just hoping, please, God, don't let me see a big explosion. Please, God, don't, you know, and and sadly, sometimes it didn't work out the way we had or it was a dry hole, which I'm great with dry holes. It means that they're all going to come home. But it's when they're not and bad things happen and we now have memorial services and you wonder to yourself, I never went out and did any of those missions and it wasn't my job to do. Did I do everything? I Did I miss something? And so you live with that. And that's why Ambien, even after I was back for years, I couldn't sleep. And I, as a healthcare provider, I'm like, oh, I got to do something. You know, I'm not going to find alcohol. I'm not going to find other drugs. You know, I, I can only run like 70 hours, 70 miles a week as it was. I can't do much more than that. What do I do? And so finally, I, I started talking to a couple of uh, physicians about how do I get off from this? Because I can't sleep. And I'm no good to anybody if I'm not getting at least some degree of sleep. And so I, I just got my unit, my organization, and my leadership to understand that I was probably going to be a pain in the ass for the next month while I get myself off from this. But but work with me because I don't want to take this for life. And and I think sometimes you got to be strong enough to tell them. No, and, and again, um, I mean that's a that's an immense amount of courage to be able to uh, recognize it and and um, you know. Find an exit plan. Um, but to- well, the nightmares that went with it, you take the ambient, it may put you to sleep, but then you have the nightmares. I'm like, I don't, I can't, I can't win for losing. There's right. got to be some way better. And, and so it made me understand much more uh, in a very visceral way the men and women that, that check out. Right. You do find that ultimate rescue is in, in suicide. And that's just such a shame. But, but I understood it far better at that point in my life than I ever did any other time. So, I mean, obviously you get emotional about it and you, and the ownership of it, I certainly understand. Um, but, you know, I mean, you, you do realize that even if your intel is correct, that doesn't eliminate anything oh. happening on the other side of that tip of the spear, right? Like um, Certainly. Academically, I get it. But I think, you know, it would be, we wouldn't be who we are. If we just, well, you know, shit happens, that's it. No, you got to always question, is there something I could do differently? Uh, Certainly, especially while I was in theater doing that. But when we came back, we did four months down there in in Balad, and we came back for four months, then we went back again. So it was just this constant cycle. But we were that reach back at SOCOM headquarters. So, because sometimes the, you know, the computer systems just aren't, very speedy in Iraq. And so, you know, it was easier to pick up uh, a secure phone line and call back and, and get the team here in the States to, to do that 
extra work for us. And, and, and I think we learned how to do that. No, you're right. Academically, you know, I, I haven't let it go, but I also understand that, you know, war is hell and people, people die, you know, and, and probably I couldn't have given them anything more. I gave them everything I had. So it's that part of me I can live with. It's not like I was, eh, you know, I didn't feel like it today. No, they got everything possible because I knew it was the same as sending my family out there. Where are you with it today? I mean, how much is there still a guilt that presides? I think there's always that little bit, but no, I, I it's not, it doesn't keep me awake at night. <laughs> Put it that way. I, I, I understand. And I think journaling has, has helped me too, um, to just put it down and, and then just say, okay, this is when I have some bad days, just pull it out, write a little. Um, did you ever talk to your kids about your experience and that sort of guilt and everything else? No, not really. <laughs> haven't really, I've been more candid here than I probably have any other time. Oh, well. Uh, thank you for that. Um, when when your kids had gone and come back, what did they share about their experience with you? Um, they were a little cryptic at times. You know, I think they try to protect me from worrying. And I was, you know, I was really okay with them. I knew that they had answered the call. I was proud that they were. Yeah, I have four sons, two marriages, four sons that are combat veterans and very proud of every one of them for answering the call when the nation needed us. And I, and I think that's a good thing, but uh, when they were first overseas, you know, in a combat zone, I was okay, but it's that last couple of weeks before they're scheduled to come home because I have, my best friend is a gold star mom and uh, you know, she lost her son, a West point kid, Lieutenant Tom Martin uh, in Iraq. And I just, you know, I can't, I just felt like the odds were with the family that at least one of these guys were going to be either horribly injured or killed. And so that last couple of weeks before they, they were supposed to come home were just horrible, just waiting for that other shoe to drop. And, and thankfully they're all home. Yeah. Uh, eight days before I left Iraq, I rolled over an IED. So uh, it was, uh, you know, um, it's it's that last you know minute of the of the half of basketball where you don't want a bad play to happen or giving up a goal in hockey in the last minute of the period right you just let's skate this thing out until the horn sounds and we'll all get out of here but uh, yeah that that fear is real trust me uh, yeah. so after Iraq you end up uh, heading to Afghanistan when and where well it was really Bagram again it was still with the special ops community mm-hmm. and they were really more of a short inserts I wasn't like right. on a long tour like. So many people were. Um, my skill set was such that when they we had major, uh, especially media takedowns, a lot of digital, whether it was phones or otherwise, um, I was able to sift and sieve through things pretty rapidly. And we also worked with the National Media Exploitation Center up in the the greater Washington D.C. area. So um, being able to make the connect points faster and more furiously to be able to get. I mean, these things fall away very quickly otherwise. So when you find a phone that gives you a connect point to a really key high value target, you know, you've got to, you've got to move fast. And so when we get these treasure troves of data that came in and one, one time we had one that was uh, basically the equivalent amount of media as what the library of Congress is. And so to be able to go through that kind of thing, it took a lot of hands quickly to, to go through it. And you can't do it all on a computer. 
some of it was data that needed, it was, you know, things that came out of a safe house or something. And so we're just sitting there going through it as fast as we possibly can looking for that, that, you know, needle in a haystack. And so those were some of my opportunities, just go fast, be there for a couple of weeks and come back. It's more like a needle in a stack of needles, but, um, you know, than than necessarily a haystack. But that said, um, when bin Laden is killed, um, being somebody who's in the intelligence community who worked on that donut that you mentioned before, um, I don't know if you can say if you were part of that whole thing or not, uh, but, you know, uh, you're smart enough to figure out how to word this. Um, so what's your feeling, one? I mean, I remember I was actually in Iraq when bin Laden was killed, and I uh-huh. remember my phone, my cell phone started buzzing. Like I had an international plan. It just bzz, 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 and 800 tech. Are you coming home now? I'm like. Why, why would I be coming home? Like, where, 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 where am I going? Oh, yeah. Like, like suddenly everything's like over because of that, right? Everybody ends and everybody gets to go home. And then when I started realizing what was going on and I turned on the TV and everything and I kept texting people, guys, that's in Pakistan. I'm in Iraq. Why would I be leaving? Like, I don't understand why you're connecting <laughs> right. the two. That's like if there's a traffic jam in Los Angeles, do you not go to work in New York? Like, what are we doing here? Like, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. So anyway, but I'm just kind of curious where you were and, and sort of your reaction. I was not uh, involved in it. And, and I, sorely wish I had been, to be honest with you. Um, Greatly relieved. Uh, I was actually on vacation and my sisters and I had a sister getaway, the same ones that I had cut the hair on their Barbie dolls back in the day. We have all connected properly again. And we we had a sister's getaway down in Florida. And it was late in the evening. It was about 11 p.m. our time when we were sitting there and it was my sister's birthday. She, it was, uh, well, early May. So she, uh, then the president comes on and, and makes the announcement and, and they both look at me because they know my career and they're like, did you know that? And I'm like, look at my face. Did I know? Cause I can't lie for beans. I cannot. And it's like, no, it, it wasn't me. I, I wish I had known but that you, it was. You knew the work that went into that, right? Like you get the, you understand the scope of the amount of work that went into that. Oh, certainly. Certainly. Yeah. That was golly just amazing that the amount of effort can you imagine how many hours yeah. just applied to try to locate one human being in this, in this big globe. And, and you would think technology and everything else, but it does just so, but on the obverse of that, you look at the Ukrainian president Zelensky and thank God so far he has evaded because <laughs> I want to make sure that that man uh, continues to, to survive. And so my hope is that if, if bin Laden could hold out from us for a decade, please let Zelensky hang out long enough until this craziness that we're going through right now um, comes out the other side and, and we can champion him for the leadership that he's displaying within his own country. When do you uh, make CW5? Oh, 19. Oh, no. 2009. Okay. 2009. So I'm, I'm still at Special Operations Command. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So at, at that point, when you make CW5, uh, I mean, you're still in for another, you know, you're in for 25 years at this point. Um, you never thought about hanging it up then? Like, CW, you capped out, right? You can't go anywhere else at this point. Uh, why, why do you still choose to kick it around afterwards? You know, I think... Well, I was still having a great time. <laughs> I was loving what I was doing. I was not feeling like I was the the one that was slowing anybody down. 
you know, yeah, I was um, at that point, I was 49 years old when I pinned. And in the Army Reserve, to be fair, the promotions are slower than in regular Army. So, you know, it took me 20 full years from the time I became a W-1 until I became a W-5. But that is that is exactly the the best you can hope for in the Army Reserve. So I I can't complain. Now, had I been regular Army, you know, COMPA-1, full-time, I'm, I feel confident I might have promoted a little bit faster. faster because they have a different standard than it, it is in the, the Army Reserve. So, no, I, I was still loving what I did, absolutely loving what I did and uh, just looking for what's my next. And, and so found that actually, which is what brought me up in 2010 to the Washington, D.C. area. And sadly, and, and I had fought against ever being up here. I never wanted to be inside the Beltway. And now guess where I am? Inside the Beltway, inside the Beltway. and loving it. Um, and, and is that where you got named uh, Chief Warrant Officer of the Reserves? Uh, that was in 2012. Okay. So I did a, an, a, an assignment up here in between the two. And I honestly had been so close nose to the grindstone working as a just an intel analyst that I didn't know that by now the Army had actually put these positions called Command Chief Warrant Officer roles in a myriad of locations. I'd never heard of it. And when I did, I said, and I was watching the things that I felt needed to be improved upon, at least within the Army Reserve and and the warrant officer community specifically. um, Like, I could fix that. I could fix that. (laughs) You know, be careful what you say. Because so I I said, you know, when when's the guy that's the command chief now? When is he going to retire? Because I'm interested. And, uh, you know, people helped push me along and set up meetings and interviews and, um, then I was selected in 2012, and then I served that role for three years, uh, traveling all over the globe with a three-star general, a commanding general of the Army Reserve. We went everywhere, including you know Japan, Korea, Guam, Hawaii, great spots pretty much. And then, of course, we visited our troops in Afghanistan, Kuwait, Iraq, you name it, we were there. So I did that kind of wandering as much as we, we were able to. For somebody who spent so many years, as you said, uh, with your uh, with your nose to the grindstone, uh, to get into this sort of role where you're just, I don't want to say a figurehead, but you're not doing that that level of grunt work. How hard of an adjustment was that for you? You know, it was it was difficult. One, um, I didn't understand the national uh, strategy like I should have. I should have done more reading, and and really, honestly, somebody should have um, that knew that. Should have said, hey, you want to read this before you get there, you know, because we're up on Capitol Hill. He's testifying. I'm being asked questions. I I don't know. But I I made myself smart pretty quickly once I realized where my my blinders were. Um, I didn't understand the difference between military policy and and statute law. Um, And so worked very hard to actually make some things change in the legal standpoint within Congress uh, to improve what I believe needed to be improved upon. Uh, And then just going out and visiting the troops and really getting a sense of what over 200,000 soldiers and the Army civilians that work with the Army Reserve, what are they seeing? How are they feeling? Are Are we caring and feeding them properly? And that was really part of that battlefield circulation, which I loved doing. Uh, and, and understanding from them what we needed to do. Warrant officers are a uh, unique bunch, um, and they are not exactly easy to produce. Um, 
I found over my career uh, that, you know, the incredible resource of knowledge that they are, they're, they're wonderful people and, and never short on a quick witted word. Uh, <laughs> but beyond that, um, again, I think there is a barrier to entry um, to the warrant officer community. I have my own theories as to why, but I'm just curious in your travels, what you found out, why do we struggle so much to make more warrant officers? Well, you know, I don't know if there's any non-Army that are listening to this. And so certainly we have the other services that have warrants, save the Air Force and now Space Force do not have warrant officers in their ranks, but certainly the the sea the services do and they get it. So I would say, you know, 40% of Army warrant officers are aviators. Typically, they start off as rotary wing, but now they can come in straight as fixed wing so they can fly some of the smaller planes uh, right away for the for the army because there's such a shortage of, of that need. But the the other 60% of army warrant officers are typically they come from the NCO community. They have already cut their teeth and, and built their skills. Part of the problem that I came across, and fortunately when I was the command chief, having somebody like Sergeant Major of the Army, Dan Daly, who worked with Chief Staff of the Army, General Odierno, um, they really took to heart some of the things that I was able to share. And uh, this idea that we are stripping from the NCO core, you know, NCOs to go warrant, or if you couldn't make E8, then you'll go warrant. No, no, no. The, the, we're less than 2% of the military, of the Army. And when you think about the total Army, there's over 1 million soldiers, active guard and reserve, a million soldiers. And there are 25,000 of that 1 million that are warrant officers. And that's from W1 to W5. We truly are this little segment, about 2% of the total army for all five ranks. So to get to W5, there's not many of us, several hundred in in the army. But it's a growth cycle that we've got to find a way to, if you will, cherry pick some of the best and brightest NCOs that exhibit strong leadership qualities that, yes, could become a command sergeant major easily. But we need to pull them out and make them that technical technical expert, because not only do we have to be really good at our job over decades, we also have to have the wherewithal and the ability to give our senior leaders in the military that gut check, that truth, Mm -hmm. that other, we are commissioned officers. And sometimes people say, why do you go commissioned? I am commissioned. I've been a commissioned officer since the day I became a chief warrant officer too. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm not chasing the next OER. I'm not worried about some of the same things that our captains and majors and, and lieutenant colonels might be, and they don't want to piss off the old man, the you know whoever that your general is. You're not going to say the things necessarily if you're in a staff position. For those of us, they've always grown up knowing that warrants will sometimes be a little bit more direct than we should be, but we say it because we have the technical expertise and the credentials to back it up. Yeah. Well, uh, one, uh, I'm, I'm the antithesis of those officers. I say whatever's on my mind. It's probably why it took me two years longer to make 06, but get a different <laughs> conversation for a different day because uh, I tell you exactly what I think. Uh, you can do with it what you want. That said, I agree with you. I- I've found through my career, NCOs are the biggest barriers to warrants. They are big time deterrence of it. They almost see mm-hmm. it's like you're turning your back on the NCO core. Um, and, and a lot of them, you know, sort of beat this narrative of, you're so far along. You can do this so much quicker. Why would you want to start over again? Right. Uh, and sort of put that narrative in their head. I have told many of my folks, 
You need to start wrecking, even though they don't have the technical, the, the experience factor yet. You need to start recognizing E4s who are groomed to be warrants mm-hmm. and catch them before they get sunk in by. You're so right. You gotta fi- I got to find E4s and young E5s who just pinned on the people who I need to go look for to go make warrants. Uh, those are the I people used that to I need carry, to carry. Uh, there's, there's warrant officer candidate rank that you wear while you're going through candidate school. Mm-hmm. And so it says WOC, where normally your rank would be yep, on your yep. uniform. Mm-hmm. I would always carry those back in the day when we just Velcroed them on, you know. And so I'd carry two or three in my my pocket. So I had coins, of course, to give, but I also had this. And so when I would ask before we went to meet with a unit, I asked the leadership, who's your best and brightest? Who do you think like three to five years from now would make a great warrant officer? And so... They might get a coin, but they would definitely get a handshake and in lieu of a coin would be that square uh, warrant officer candidate rank. And I would shake their hands and I said, I understand that someday you're going to wear this. And they put it in their pocket. And I've gotten many letters from those young troops that have said, I put it up either in my cubby at work or I put it like on the ceiling of my car where it will stick to your, mm-hmm. you know, the, the roof of your car inside. Um, and they look at it and it just kept driving them. And and they've I've been asked to come down and, and be one of those that gets to put a shoulder board on their shoulder when they graduate down that's at Fort Rucker. Awesome. Yeah. And those are lovely moments. And but that's the thing. We're not we're not outstripping the NCO Corps. And I'm proud to have been a non-commissioned officer. You can't take that away from me. Um, and that's where I learned a lot of the things that I think you need to do as a warrant officer, especially in a technical community. So thank you for saying that. I think that sometimes we are our own worst enemies instead of making sure that those that you could see might someday become a command sergeant major at a four-star level are exactly who, who do you want to be your W5 someday? You want the dunderhead E5 that, well, he couldn't make it. So let's make him go warrant. And someday they make it up the food chain and become a leader in senior leader in the army. I don't think you want that to happen. Pick your best. Yeah. Well, we, we, there's a there's a lot of senior leaders in the organization who have a problem letting their best go do other things. Um, I am not one of those people. I have said repeatedly, this job was here before you got here. It'll be here after you leave. We're all going to be fine. We've been kicking this army thing around for 250 some on years now. We'll be okay. You go do yeah, what you we- want to do. If you're good, <laughs> go, go reach for the stars. We'll be fine. We'll figure yeah. this thing out. Um but again, a different discussion. So uh, how do you know after 37 years for you, it's time to hang it up? Or or did, did the Army turn around and say, Phyllis, we're done with you. Go home. No, I, I actually could have stayed until um, 2020, uh, the summer of 2020. But um, by 2017, actually, I was, I was getting sick. There was something wrong with me, and I knew it. I had done the Marine Corps Marathon the, the fall before. Um, up here in Washington, D.C., but now my last assignment I took, I felt like it was a give-back opportunity. So I went down to the Warrant Officer Career College at Fort Rucker, Alabama, to be a senior instructor and to write curriculum for our warrant officers from candidates through our W-5s that come back to the schoolhouse for additional training, a part of our professional military education. And shortly after I got there, man, I just, I knew I wasn't, something wasn't right. And as a nurse and everything, I'm like, something is wrong. I went from running a Marine Corps marathon in a decent, respectable time frame to I couldn't dry my hair in the morning without having to sit down because I was too fatigued. <laughs> I'm like, something's not right. 
And then you go to sick call. And of course, now I'm 56, 57 years old. And uh, the first thing you get by this young doctor, young captain, is a pat on my hand to say, well, you are getting older. And I, I said, well, not for nothing. I know that. But I did a four and a half hour marathon six, seven months ago. And now I can't dry my hair in the morning. If I sit down because my arms can't, I can't get them up high enough to dry my, I sit down and I wake up two hours later because I'm just that exhausted from getting a shower and trying to dry my hair. Something's wrong. And uh, I had to continue to push. It took several months. And finally they sent me to a specialist, uh, well, referred me off post. And uh, fortunately this man that I fell across, God nudges, perfect. This guy had been a uh, physician, army physician at BAMSI, Brook Army Medical Center, and, and dealing with our amputees and our burn victims and all these things. And just as he was getting selected for 05, which meant he was not going to have direct bedside care anymore. They wanted him to move into a research role. He's like, you don't pay me enough for that. I either get to stay with the soldiers or I'm out. So he got out. And to my good fortune, he knew um, as soon as he looked at my data, he's like, I know what's wrong with you. And it's a disease called primary biliary cholangitis, PBC for short. And it's basically my own body is attacking my liver. And it's basically scarring all of the smaller bile ducts. And so it impacts everything. And because of that, vitamin D in particular is not, for years I didn't know, was not being um, properly held within my body. So I have the osteoporotic bones of a woman like 90 years old. And I thought, this can't be. I'm a runner. I do weight-bearing exercise. This is everything that's supposed to keep me from that happening. Um, So, yeah, the fatigue, the illness. And in the 1980s, this disease was the leading cause of liver transplantation. But fortunately, they've done enough research that now I take meds every morning and night to slow the progression enough that ideally I may never need a liver transplant. But that also caused other secondary and and tertiary problems within my body. And so ultimately, I knew it was it was time I couldn't keep up anymore. And that's just not me. So I was like, okay, time to drop some papers. Uh, sad moment or just sort of, Hey, it happens kind of deal for you. I, I more of a, you know, I'm a, I'm pretty easygoing. It, it is what it is. I was 57 years old when I retired, you know, I had a good ride and I cannot complain. Uh, and, and with the, the meds that I take and trying to, to eat and, and exercise, not as much as I should. I know that, um, this job that I have now keeps me incredibly busy and far too stationary. Um, but we're, we're doing a, a challenge with Wear Blue Run to Remember this week to remember Lori Piastua, who died the day that Jessica Lynch was taken prisoner of war. And so we have purpose. And so we're, we're my team and I were in, in this week, we're racking up 177 miles for the 177 women that have given their lives in combat zones. So we have purpose and it keeps keeps me moving and and doing that. But yeah, I mean, I'll be 62 in May. And it just, it's like, how can that be? You know, in your head, you're never that old, but when you catch yourself in the mirror, you're like, okay, yeah, I, get, I see it. <laughs> well, I lied to my children and told them I'm 35 and they believe that. So whenever I ask them how old I am, they just say 35 and like, yeah, you're good. Good job. Kid. Yeah. Good for um, you. So how do you end up as the president of the women in military service for America Memorial foundation? Uh, and is this one of those things that you sort of stumbled in or was there, cause we didn't really always talk about you, 
sort of efforting and championing women, you spent so much time championing yourself throughout your career. That well, I, I, I sucked at championing myself, and you can tell well, that if okay, you look so, at my awards and decorations. <laughs> I just was busy doing my job. Right, like okay, so that's, 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 uh, right? that's what I meant to say. Like I, I, That came out wrong. You, you were so focused on your career that you didn't really devote your time to others the way this job as the president of the Women in Military Service uh, for uh, America Memorial Foundation requires. Yeah. So now as it, far as mentoring in the military, I would like to think I was pretty doggone right. good at making sure mentoring and coaching and pushing people to to see that there was more to themselves and asking them to to step up to the challenge. Uh, and, and I guess I try to hold myself along the same lines. And yes, my opportunities to to you know go airborne and all of those things, it was it wasn't like, oh, look at this female doing it. Yeah, I'm a soldier and that was my opportunity. I'm wearing a maroon beret at Fort Bragg and I don't have jump wings. That's wrong. So in my mind. So I, you know, when I finally got the opportunity to go to jump school, I'm going. And you know, I was 32 when I went and it was great. And so I never was, I was so busy proving that I was a good soldier and not, oh, not bad for a female. No, right. good soldier. And, and so I actually was, had no plans whatsoever of doing anything with the military women's memorial, which is beautiful. And I knew about it. I didn't learn about it until 2013 and it had already been open for 15 years, 16 years. And then I hear about it um, because I was busy. And uh, it just wasn't in my wheelhouse, to be honest with you. But after I retired and I was back up here working as a contractor in the Army G2 in the Pentagon, uh, I had crossed paths with some of the people that, that were involved with the Military Women's Memorial and been to events, promotions, retirements, both men and women. It's a beautiful location at the entrance to Arlington, right? And uh, But as fate would have it, somebody had, had hit me up about potentially uh, applying for the, the role of president here. And I said, yeah, I'm not that interested. But that, again, was one of those, those moments where I parked in a veteran parking spot and somebody challenged me for having done so. And I, well, I was, went into the, the store after the fact. I thought, you know, if it had been a guy, served or not, that parked in veteran and got out, that other gentleman would not have asked him, Hey, are you sure you're a veteran? You know, but I got challenged on it and I thought, wait, I've done my time. And, and so I, you know, I didn't want to be rude to him. We had the conversation, but when I got inside, I said, you know, we are not there yet. We still, and why is this memorial here? Because our story and our phase lines are very different than our male counterparts in the military. When a woman took a musket ball in the thigh in the Revolutionary War because she was disguised as a man, she dug it out herself rather than be found out to be masquerading as a man defending her own country. Uh, you know, and, and it's continued really for a very long time. General George Washington, you know, Revolutionary War. Our first woman general is in 1970. There's, there's huge differences, and it's not right or wrong. It's how society viewed it and how society and laws were put in place to then ultimately afford us. Now, every career field is open to us. If you're good enough and you can meet the criteria, please don't lower the standards. We will come through. There will be some that make it through. But there's a lot of men that wash out in some of these more onerous and difficult things, and good on them for trying. Because the things that I had the opportunity to at least attempt and fail 
were things that I will never look back on and say, I wish I had at least tried. I tried, but failure is part of the lesson plan. And if anybody doesn't have any failures in their book, they're wrong. You do. You just, you've, you've, you've tucked them away someplace because they made you feel bad for a moment. But for me, anytime I didn't do whatever I had set out to do, it was still challenge accepted. Okay. I didn't get it this time. Wait for it. I'll do it next time. Or I'm going to move on to the next, you know, if you decide that's not that much in your, you know, in your game plan. But I think that for me, once I had the opportunity, thank God that guy challenged me because it was just a couple of days before the deadline to apply. I put it in and be careful what you ask for. So now here we are uh, two and a half years into this role and I'm loving it. The things 37 years, I never knew about the strength of women in the military for 250 years. Never knew it. I know it now. And I'll continue to learn every day for the rest of my life about these incredible women that for, for too long were marginalized. Their stories were not told. And that's what we do at the memorial. We honor and tell the stories of those 3 million women plus growing every day, which we love to be able to do that and shine the spotlight on their stories. Well, hell, listen, we'd love to help here on the Hazard Ground. Uh, send, send us more. Send us your tired, your weary, whatever they, you know how it goes. Uh, send, it, send, send them all to us because that's, uh, you know, very similar to what we're doing here. We just want to tell these stories of, of everybody who served in uniform. And certainly uh, the role of women is, is increasing, which is a great thing. Um, and, you know, I, I've, it's funny. I, I've never really come across a female who couldn't cut the mustard any more so than a male who couldn't cut the mustard, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, you, you right. I, I never, I, anybody who couldn't do the job, I didn't look at it because she was a female. I just looked at it because like, you're lazy. You're a bad soldier. Like it never, but there's, they're, they're all over the place. Um, but I, yeah. I do think there is a certain amount of, you know, people in my position have to actively recruit for certain things. I remember as a battalion commander, uh, I had an opening command come up and I told everybody, I want female nominees, find them. Go search for them and find them. Bring them to me. I'm not saying they're going to get it, but find them. You know, search out people who haven't had an opportunity yet and bring them to me. And I think that's, you know, the biggest part of our, my responsibility is to make sure that we look for the individuals because they're around. Yes, there are much smaller numbers. Again, as I mentioned earlier, 13% of the Army is female. So mm-hmm. I'm going to have 87 males for every 13 females. Um, so right. it's easier to find the males, but it is my responsibility as a leader to grab some of those 13 and say, I want you to apply for this position. I want you to work here. Um, and, and, and I believe that truly that's that's the best I can do and, and the most that I can do. But I'd love to judge everybody on the same merit uh, and, and let their resumes and their careers, much like yours did, speak for itself. Um, but when push comes to shove, you know, it's my job to afford the opportunity to everybody equally. Yeah, and I would say too, please, uh, you know, the idea of selecting somebody based on uh, a gender because you feel like you need to the diversity matrix isn't perfect you know so I, I worked slow. hard all my life and and as have so many men and it would just I don't want an opportunity at the detriment of somebody that was better qualified and would have done potentially a better job than me don't give it to me because you know there's a some kind of quota in the in the mix it's like either I'm the best for the job that has applied because I'm sure there were other people that would have and could have done a better job than I'm doing right now as the president of in my current role. But if you didn't apply, tough luck. 
You know, I'm the best that came to them at the time, at least according to the search committee. Um, and so now the the pressure is on to prove that their uh, trust in me is in fact worthy. And so, and I can't let 3 million women down, can I? That's I have to step forward and keep telling their stories of, of in tribute to what they've done when it was incredibly harder than it is now. Well, granted, we're asking women to do anything and everything. Women did everything and anything they were allowed to do in generations gone by. And uh, good for them because that's the shoulders that I get to stand on that gave me the opportunities that I saw. And when I have these young uh, cultural support team women, women that are rangers, I have a picture right beside me. The closest photo is me standing with the first two women rangers, um, Shay and and Chris, Mm -hmm. uh, at their induction into the Army Women's Foundation Hall of Fame. I mean, these are big deals. And it just, if you can see it, you can be it. And I never really fully grasped that until one time when I was in Afghanistan and we were visiting troops. And this group of uh, NCOs came up and asked if they could get a picture. And I'm standing beside my three-star. And he sort of gives them the hand for a second. He's like, I'll be with you in just a second. And they start shaking their head. No, no, her. We want a picture with her. And, And he's like, oh, okay. Because they said, we've never seen a female CW5. And this is something we could, as NCOs, we could be that someday. So yeah, I'm like, oh my gosh, it was my first moment of feeling like, sir, I just beat you on your same game. So it was fun to get that picture and then take the time to talk to them and encourage them to consider um, this kind of an opportunity and what that means. But also you're going to be standing shoulder to shoulder and giving advice to senior leaders in the military someday if your career goes long enough, but it's been a great, great opportunity and I wouldn't have changed a minute of it. No, and I think the other thing too that that I'm charged with is to continue to um, advocate for the outstanding females. I had a support operations officer who worked for me, uh, and the minute a uh, my brigade commander had said to me when I was the XO, he'd said, "Hey, I have a command opening up. Who are some of the names that you think of?" And immediately, and even though she had just pinned on 05, I said immediately, I, I gave her his name, her. She's the perfect person for that job. Like those are the opportunities that you don't want to miss to help advocate for the stellar females that are among our ranks. And I didn't choose her because she was a female. I chose her because she was an outstanding leader and an outstanding officer. And she was the first person that if I had the opportunity to choose to work with again, I would choose her because she is excellent at her job. Um, But it's those sort of things. I think that too, that sometimes we swing and miss as the males in in our organization, we, we default to not thinking of those people first. Um, But it's much like, you, you know, she was so outstanding that it was easy for her to stand out. You know, like you could tell who the superstars are. And and it's like you said, I want the superstars to be in superstar positions. It's not that I'm looking for the mediocre individual. I want the best people to do the best jobs, to do the toughest jobs, because that makes everything around them better. Um, and I think that's another area of focus where, you know, leaders in the military sort of have to advocate for those individuals. I couldn't agree more. And and that's so important that we, we, we do that and not out of a sense of um, duty, but, but it's always me- meant a lot to me when somebody said you were the first one I thought of when if, if they needed an answer on something, you know, it, we're supposed to be the subject matter experts 
We are the technical experts in the Army. And if you can't, and the great thing is, because we're such a small cohort, 25,000 strong across all three combos, uh, we know each other. And all I need to do is be able to phone a friend. I don't need to know it. I need to know who knows it. And we have that kind of a network and a safety that we'll always have each other's back. And I, I used it when I was at Special Operations Command, whether it was other intel soldiers, logisticians, things that I didn't think about. How are we getting supplies there? Even photos. We When they needed imagery before they were going to go do a mission, and we'd pull it down, but it's like, oh, wait a second, especially in, in a terrain that actually had trees, um, if you're, if I had imagery and the, the best I had was in a deforested or de-leafed environment, there were no leaves on the trees, but guess what? There's leaves on the trees now. Um, it's problematic. I can't tell people the same kind of look and feel. So being able to reach out to other organizations, other individuals in the warrant community going, hey, I need a picture that looks like it looks today. So as our teams are getting ready to go, they know what to expect because they need to know if they need to fire on something, if they need to shoot at something, um, are they going to be able to see through? If there's no leaves on the trees, you're probably going to see through a little bit better. But if it's fully leafed out, it's going to make an impact. Are they going to be able to use it for their own cover? Or are they going to be able to be able to see through to what it is? So it makes a, a big difference. And these are things that I would never have learned had I not taken the time to sit with the operators more than just say I'm in my little Intel silo and I'll give you the information. But I learned very quickly there were there were things to to know whether streams and creeks were running or not at a time of year that these guys were going to go in, into areas, as well as I used my medical background um, when we had teams when South Ossetia and and that happened in 2008, uh, teams were told to fall back. Well, if they had to go to a different country, the problem was we had only given them the intel medically of what was going on within the country they were in. And so we learned to always look at all of the neighboring nations. And so if there was an outbreak of any kind of disease or illness, they knew that and the, the medics always carried extra things in their kits. So in case there was a fallback plan, we had uh, some pieces in their kit for them to cover down. But there's all those ancillary things that it just takes that second and third order thinking uh, that thankfully, and I think, you know, sometimes you think 20 years and out, if I had done 20 years and out, I would have never developed that degree of thought pattern that got me through that. And that's why sometimes I think there is value in, in those of us that can stick it out and, and serve for 30, 35, 40 years, mm-hmm. uh, that knowledge, or you convert over into civilian and continue to, to play the same game, but in a different different way. What's the best way people can support the Women in Military Service for America Memorial Foundation? Sure. So the the Military Women's Memorial is operated by the foundation, which I'm president of, and it is a 501c3. And we rely completely on the generosity of America to keep this beautiful building, which the front wall was built in 1932. And then behind it is like, think of it as a museum. It's an education center. And to maintain all of that, as well as all of the artifacts that we have, uh, Think of Raiders of the Lost Ark at the end in the warehouse. That's us for all women's military items. So to care for that, curate and store, maintain, it takes a lot of money and we need your help. And so simply you can go to womensmemorial.org, just womensmemorial.org, and you'll see a donut bu- donate button on that, as well as uh, you can learn so much more about the exhibits and the stories that we share in in. The memorial itself. And please, if you're in the D.C. area, come visit us. If you're in Arlington already, 
that rooftop. If for anybody that's looking at um, the photo that I have behind me, uh, that rooftop there is the best view in town. It, we have nothing between us and the Lincoln Memorial as you look towards the city. So wow. Lincoln Memorial, Washington Memorial. And then if you did an about face and looked up the hill behind us, uh, it's the white grave markers that remind us the price that, that we all, that, that those have paid to keep us free. Uh, what would CW5 Phyllis Wilson uh, tell, whether it's Private Phyllis Wilson, Sergeant Phyllis Wilson, CW, WO1 Wilson, uh, the crossroads of her career? What would you go back and tell her about the toughest moments in her career? You know, it's it's interesting because I, I made them the toughest on myself just because I guess my fear of failure, you know. So whether I was going through Defense Language Institute and just I, I had this stupid thing where I always felt like I had to be first in class, first in whatever, first in for. And fortunately, over time, yeah, that's, that's a stupid thing, by the way. Well, <laughs> no, it's mean, not. It, 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 it kind of it can be detrimental to a degree where when when you don't end up top of class, top of whatever in your second or third or you know, fifth, 10th, 20th, you know, what do they call the person that graduates with the lowest ranking in med school? The doctor. That's right. <laughs> so, you know, the thing is, sometimes I would put too much on when my husband broke his back in, in Desert Shield, Desert Storms, caring for him and his 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 PTSD and and two little boys that are rambunctious little boys. And I was in nursing school at the same time, you know, and it's like, you're trying to balance all this, but I still wanted straight A's. And after a while you're like, a B is okay. You know, it's all right. If you get a B in a class, you're still going to graduate. You're still going to be a registered nurse, let it go. Um, so it's all of those things. That I think um, I would tell myself, you don't have to be number one at everything, but you have to push yourself to be the best you can be at any given phase in your life when you balance it across your entire everything that's on your plate at the same time in a silo yeah i could have maybe been top of my class and and whatever i could have been a better runner i could have but when you you're trying to be that whole person everything you know the super mom the everything there comes a time when you've got to say what am i willing to accept that i am not going to be best at and, and then sort of hold in your heart, well, maybe I would have been if I didn't have this, this, and this, but it's okay. But I, I, I don't, I think some of the challenges that the Army put in front of me, I know for a fact it's what made me who I am today. And I wouldn't have wanted it to be any easier. If anything, I would have loved to have had some of the opportunities that I see our young women have today. But, but that's a migration and we're going to continue to watch that as it morphs and changes over time too. So it's, I wouldn't, wouldn't tell me change anything. You, you have four boys. Um, what's the biggest lesson that you've had to teach them about women in the military or even women in general? Like what's, what's the, what's the, the one thing that you remind them of consistently about how men and women should, or are supposed to interact both in a professional and personal setting. Oh, good question. I have, you know, a total of eight kids blended. So mm-hmm. I have the four boys that are combat veterans. I have another son, Jesse. He's the youngest. He did. He chose not to join the military and then three daughters. And uh, so love every bit of all of this. It's so much fun. But what, what I would actually put that back on its ear is because my boys trust me, my young, you know, these 
please. My my oldest son is 38 or 39 now. <laughs> I, you know, so I, but I in talking with them, I found that it's not just I think sometimes women think that well, we have to try harder to be as good as the guys. And, and I I never felt like I had to try harder. I just, I always put myself up against my own yardstick. This is where I want to be. And, you know, but most of my sons have been forthright that they sometimes suffer that same imposter syndrome that one of them now is much more fit than he's ever been. And he's, he's been a first sergeant like four times uh, but he he always felt like he wasn't as good because some of the other first sergeants were just gazelle runners. And he he's great on push-ups and sit-ups, but running, he'll run till he pukes because that's what we do. But he was never a fast, fast runner. And now because he's changed how he does his cardio and everything, he really only runs for the physical fitness test. But he runs way faster because he's totally changed what he does. A lot more rowing and things that he's learned over time. Um, but they all seem to feel this sense of I'm not as good as my peers. And so I think that's something that I want a lot of the women that are listening to this to hear too. It's not just us and certainly not just us in the military that think, well, we have it harder or we have, I'm telling you four, four men that are very accomplished in their own rights within the military and in their own lives uh, suffer the same thing. And I've, I'd like to think it's not hereditary. It's just that thing of we push ourselves to be, to prove that we are, we're there, that we're equal, that we're as good as. And I think that's a human nature and you could argue it's a human flaw, but it is what it is. And, and so when I, I go to a lot of women's events where women, you know, will, will talk about how much harder it is for us. And certainly on the physicality, in some cases, that may be the case. But I think our mental status of wanting to be the very best and bring, and definitely we know we wear the cloth of this nation. And so wear it with pride, wear it in a way that when anybody else that is not in the military sees you, you leave a really good signal of what being in the military means. And, and to me, that was always important. Well, perfect words to end it on. Again, womensmemorial.org is where you guys can go to check out uh, everything that you need to do, help support, donate, uh, and do whatever you, uh, feel comfortable doing to, again, support this cause. It's admirable what you've undertaken at this point in your life, given everything that you have gone through already. And certainly, you know, uh, hearing your story over the past, you know, hour plus almost two hours now has been incredible. Uh, I am, I am honored to have, uh, been side by side with you here in this discussion, just because I think that it's so important that we continue to have people like you continue to, to lead from the front and, and do the things that are necessary uh, for not only women, but just for all service members to get a better understanding of how uh, our, our service operates, where we've come from, where we are, where we're going. And I think um, the wealth and breadth of experience that you have and the knowledge that you have is is unmatched. And uh, I, I've learned a lot and I'll take a lot of the lessons that you spoke of and, and carry them forward with me. But I continue to wish you nothing but great health, uh, continued success, uh, and continue to make uh, the, the Women's Memorial something that uh, everybody is cognizant of, aware of, and, and you know something that we're, we're obviously proud of. But that, that's right up there with every other memorial in D.C. that they go see, because that that really is what uh, what we need to happen. We need to take this knowledge that's in there and, and make sure it's 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 commonplace to everybody. So again, thank you so so much. Thank you, my pleasure, uh, Phyllis Wilson. Thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast. 
hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.